I hope everybody enjoyed your lunch. We're very good at eating. We've got that down. So uh, it's uh, now uh, a real pleasure to introduce Tucker Carlson. Tucker is a veteran journalist and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. <clears throat> he is co-founder and editor-in-chief of the Daily Caller, one of the largest and fastest growing news sites in the country. They have great stuff. I, I really enjoy reading his Daily Caller. Call <clears throat> uh, really well-written columns and information there. Uh, he's currently a co-host of <clears throat> Fox and Friends. Tucker joined Fox from MSNBC, uh, where he hosted several nightly news programs, previously appeared on CNN's Crossfire, and holds the distinction of being the youngest anchor in the history of, the, of that network. During the same period, Tucker also hosted a weekly public affairs program on PBS. Um, he's a longtime writer and is reported from around the world including dispatches from Iraq, Pakistan, Lebanon, and Vietnam. He's been a columnist for the New Yorker Magazine and Reader's Digest, and also previously <clears throat> written for Esquire, the New York Times Magazine. And uh, his recent, most recent book is entitled Politicians, Partisans, and Parasites, <laughs> My Adventure in Cable News. <laughs> This is the one I like the most. In 2006, he appeared on ABC's Dancing with the Stars. So that's very good. <laughs> the title of his speech is His Highness, uh, The Unconstitutional World of Barack Obama. Tucker, welcome. Thank you, John. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you. I, I totally forgot I was a senior fellow at Cato. Uh, I have the greatest and most libertarian arrangement with Cato ever, which is they don't pay me and I don't go in. And it, it's, fan, it's fantastic. So it's rare that I'm really just at Cato events and I'm around this many people I agree with. And it is such a nice feeling and such a rare feeling. Um, so thank you so much for having me. I probably come to Cato events too often. I know this because I just ran into someone outside who said, I saw you when you spoke last time to Cato. And I said, oh, that's great. He said, I remember exactly what you said. And so I had that sinking feeling. And he said, you said that Joe Biden was a genius. And I said, I, obviously, I didn't say anything like that. I mean, that's insane. You said that. And I all of a sudden remembered why I went into journalism in the first place, which is a total and blessed lack of accountability. <laughs> it is, there are a lot of things wrong with journalism, truly. Um, everyone hates you. It doesn't pay well. I could go on. But... On the upside, you're never responsible for anything you do or say. And I gotta say, that in the end is worth a lot. I sleep uninterrupted every night like a golden retriever for eight hours as a result of that. Um, because nobody ever comes up and confronts me with things I've said or done. Uh, so please don't, don't do that again. Um, and it's super nice to be in Naples. I'm gonna move here someday. Uh, just because I think everyone does uh, at some point and I just, I can't wait. Um, so. I want to uh, speak pretty briskly. It's my instinct to speak really long, uh, but I'd much rather have a conversation since most people here are uh, smarter and better informed than I am. Um, so I'll, I'll stop and I hope we can have a conversation. Uh, but in the meantime, if there's anything you disagree with um, or if you have something to add, please shout out. Most people who speak hate to be interrupted. They hate heckling, but obviously I work in cable news, so it's not like you're going to rattle my cage or hurt my feelings because I don't have any uh, left. So, um, so please do that. Yell, throw a dinner roll, uh, whatever. So here's the thing that I'm obsessed with. I, I, uh, I, as John said, I run the Daily Caller and, um, and work at Fox, and so 
really most of my life is spent in pretty shallow pursuits, specifically trying to predict who's going to win the next election or next series of elections. And it's actually not that hard. I bet on every single election as a matter of course and habit, and I've done pretty well just because, you know, it's pretty easy to know really who's going to win. And I would say this year and this cycle coming up, this presidential cycle, is the one exception. I've covered every election since 1992. I've, I've, really, I've never lost money on one. And this year, I haven't put a single dollar down. And I was thinking the other day, why is that? Why is it so opaque, at least from my perspective? And the reason is really simple. And it has to do with something I, I learned this year. And here's, here's the story. So I have a ton of kids. Um, I have more kids than any other Episcopalian I know, a lot. Um, <laughs> Normal in Provo, weird in Washington where we are. So anyway, I have all these kids and they all need to be educated. So uh, one of them needed to go to a new school. So I was tasked with driving her around to all these different schools this fall. Um, so I spent a week touring schools. And it, I mean, if you've been through it, you know, you, you sit in the waiting room while your child goes in to get interviewed. And so you sit there and there's literally nothing to do. It's like 45 minutes long. And I didn't want to look at my phone because I didn't want to reveal myself to be the, the, the sort of tool I am. So... I spent an entire week reading high school yearbooks. That's all I did for a full week. And it was the single most interesting thing I did all year by far. Here's what I learned. If you look at high school yearbooks in the United States from the years, let's say, 1946 when the troops came home to, say, 1966, that 20-year period, the first thing you notice, the salient fact of that experience is all the high school seniors look the same. It's, it, I, I'm serious which is actually seems kind of weird at first. And then the more this experiment went on, it, it rattled me. They all have the same haircut. They all have similar names. They all had similar interests. They were all in civics clubs studying Greek into Model UN. Everything about them looked the same. For a 20-year span, there was a continuity of culture during that period up until 1966. Something over the summer of 1966 happened, and the kids in the class of 67 looked nothing like the kids in the class of 66. And that thing, of course, that happened was the 60s, and you know, 50 years later, we're still debating why it happened and what it meant, and et cetera. But there was this pivot, this dramatic pivot at that point. So this evoked in me a couple of questions. One, when was the last time we had a 20-year period in America where the culture kind of remained the same? And the answer is 50 years ago. That hasn't happened since. And the second question was, do you think the people in the class of 67 fully understood how different they were from the class that preceded them? And the answer is probably not. Because when you're in the middle of a change, even like a world historic change, and it's not just about haircuts, it's about attitudes, you're not really aware of it, actually. So here's the point I'm making. The pace of change in American society, and this is reflected in election results, has accelerated pretty dramatically from that point to this and is accelerating more still going forward. I mean, this is kind of a banal, obvious point, but it's something that people, at least I, almost never stop to reflect upon and its consequences. And the reasons for this are obviously many, and books have been written about it, though not enough. And the obvious ones are you know, technology, immigration. There's different people live here that really our immigration policy changed in 65. There's different people live in the country. Technology, of course, always accelerates um, the pace of change. It is change, um, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the salient political point. People don't like rapid change. They don't. Now, they say they do. And in the last two presidential elections, they said to pollsters pretty explicitly they do and they wanted it. But people lie to pollsters and people don't know themselves. And they don't express themselves 
clearly. So in other words, when people say they want change, what they're really saying is they want, I don't know, incremental improvement. But they're not saying, they never have said in any country in history that I'm aware of, yes, we want wholesale change. We want dramatic change. We want the basic institutions of our life uprooted and replaced with something else because people just don't ever want that, period. It makes them extremely anxious. Now, I know I'm speaking to a room full of libertarians, all of whom want radical change, like yesterday, okay? So you're looking at me very skeptically. But trust me, and I, I think history bears this out, at points along the continuum, when we can identify dramatic change in place, you always, without any exception, see social upheaval. Sometimes violent, sometimes not, but always pretty dramatic. And that's people's natural reaction to the change. So here's the point. I think we had a real pivot in attitudes in the United States right around 2008 in the financial collapse. And I've been looking for the last year at polling data to see if that's true, and I think it is true. I think basically what you're going to find is kids who graduated from high school in 2007 share very few of the basic preconceptions about American life that the kids who graduated the year after and in subsequent years share. In fact, kids who graduate after 2008 share almost none of the same assumptions every person in this room grew up sharing with almost every other person in the United States. And I don't mean just on minor stuff. Like, you know, are you for gay marriage? Not that's minor, but, you know, in the scope of things, you know, not one of the most important issues ever. But I mean on more basic assumptions about things like democracy and science and man's connection to the state and capitalism. So if you look at the polling data, people who graduated high school after 2008 have radically different views on the markets. So we all grew up in an America where there were debates about capitalism. There were debates about, you know, does it work? Is it fair? But no one really debated because no one really doubted that it was by far the most efficient way to bring about prosperity. I mean, there was no question about that, was there? I mean, even, you know, even the most radical people I knew growing up in California assumed that capitalism created the most wealth. They just thought it didn't do so in a fair manner. You look at the polling now, people who graduated high school after 2008, more of them say, and probably some percentage of them actually believe, that they identify with socialism more than capitalism. There is greater doubt about capitalism as a system, markets as a system, than there's ever been in my lifetime. Same with democracy. I don't know a single person growing up who doubted that a democracy was the fairest way to order a society. People groused about it, but they were very much on the margins. I don't think there was any large group of Americans who doubted that democracy was the best way to run a country. In fact, that it was you know, our chief achievement as a country. I don't think that's a, as common a belief now. And if you don't believe it, ask yourself this question. So when Bush announced the invasion of Iraq, and in subsequent years as they were attempting to justify it, not having found the weapons that they claimed precipitated it, uh, you often heard the president and his minions explain that, well, really the point of this exercise was to bring democracy to the rest of the world. And that was considered like a pretty, you know, by the majority anyway, a plausible reason to go to war because democracy was that important an export. And when the president got up and said, by the way, countries that have democratic elections are much less prone to violence they're much better neighbors. They're much better trading partners. They're just much better. It's worth it to export democracy for its own sake. Most people kind of nodded in bovine agreement. Now? No. 
How many people do you know who think democracy would be like a good plan for Saudi Arabia or Jordan? Have you ever met anybody who thinks that? No. Because people's views about that system as a panacea for socialists have dramatically changed. And the third area where I think attitudes have dramatically changed is science, unfortunately. And you're seeing some of this reflected in the debate in the last two days over vaccinations. I grew up in La Jolla, California, next to the Salk Institute. The entire town was focused on the polio vaccine. I mean, it was a, an article of faith so deep that it was unquestioned that science meant progress and that scientific progress, while, you know, sometimes a mixed blessing, was basically worth having. I mean, I never met a person who doubted that. And I certainly never met and never conceived possible the idea that there would be affluent, well-educated, high IQ people who flat out rejected the basic tenets of science. And yet there are a lot of them. And if you look at the polling on the vaccine question, which those of you who have been following it maybe are interested enough to check it out in the last couple of days, who's against vaccines? I know, you know, if you you watch MSNBC, it's all the right-wingers who are against vaccines, along with, you know, evolution and photosynthesis and gravity and all the other scientific things they they don't believe in. But the truth is, if you look at the polling on the question, Who's most skeptical of vaccine regimens, which, by the way, are the single most important advancement in human health ever? It's young people. Young people are are very, very skeptical, much more skeptical than older people of the efficacy and, in fact, the moral correctness of vaccines. So there is a huge disconnect. I'm belaboring the point because I think it's worth it between not just what Republicans and Democrats, liberals and conservatives, libertarians and everyone else believe about the world, but what young people and people who aren't young believe. That is the real divide. And that's one of the reasons that we have had such a volatile political life over the past 15 years. America does not have a volatile political history. And you often hear people say it does. And if you think this is bad, you should see what Andrew Jackson did to his opponent. And he shot a guy or whatever, this sort of these kind of trite historical analyses, but the truth is it actually, with a few exceptions, Civil War being the most obvious, it has been a pretty placid run in American politics. And the fastest way to know this is to look at election results going back 100 or 150 years and look at the number of wave elections. A wave election in political science is an election defined by a gain of 20 or more seats in the House, at least one in the Senate, and no move in the presidency, because these are seen as elections that signify a pretty dramatic shift in public opinion. So we have had, our, in just recent years, three wave elections in a row. The last time we had that, 60 years ago. So if this were a wave chart, you would see, in congressional elections anyway, a series of gentle rollers becoming very choppy seas. That's basically what it looks like. So here's the macro point I'm making. It's very hard to know where we're going but it's worth keeping in mind a couple of facts about how things have changed. And that, as I said, when you're right in the middle of it, when you're living through one of these pivot points, it's very difficult to get perspective on how much things are changing and very easy to believe that things have always been this way, that the slogans on the barn have always been repainted or whatever. But there are a couple of things that have changed dramatically and here's, here's just a couple of them. One, the Democratic Party is no longer the party of the middle class, which, this, you know, this, like most trends, this has been a long time coming, but it's, it's official. It's absolutely official. So for my, I'm 45, for I would, you know, my entire life, uh, the Democratic Party made a claim, and the president to this day makes a claim, that we are the party that represents the average American, the middle class American, not just culturally or economically middle class, but culturally middle class. And that has always been kind of true. If you look at the results of the 2012 election, 
it becomes clear that the transformation is complete. The Democratic Party is not a middle class party. Middle class people don't vote Democrat, actually. The Democratic Party is a coalition between the elites and the poor, okay? And everybody else is left out. So if you look at exit polling, for example, from 2012, people with master's degrees who make over 300 grand a year are the most single most likely category to vote Democrat. So the dichotomy between you know, the working man's party, the party of Walter Ruther, the lunch bucket party, and the country club party, not only is inoperative, it's ludicrous, it's almost exactly the opposite. So the party is now a coalition, again, between you know, the faculty lounge and the unemployment line, basically. So what does this mean? It means that the concerns of the Democratic Party, and these are on full display every day, are completely different from what they were when I was growing up. And if you're older than I, very that much more different from what they were like when you were a child. So the concerns traditionally of the Democratic Party were wages. Wages. Democrats were concerned about how much the average person made. Because by the way, that is the key concern of the average person. And, and let me just parenthetically note, if you are interested in ideas, and especially if you're a libertarian, and I'm speaking about myself here, pretty easy to forget that, actually, and imagine that the average person's deepest desire um, is for something abstract. And oh, that it were. I mean, I wish that were the case, uh, but it's not. The average person's deepest desire is for security. Sorry. And that's reflected most concretely in wages. And the Democratic Party spoke to that desire pretty effectively for like, you know, 80 years. Um, if you look at the constellation of issues that the president is really concerned about, you'll notice that none of them have any bearing at all on the concerns of the average working person. The most excited I have seen in the last year, aides, White House aides, a lot of whom live in my neighborhood in Northwest DC, the most excited I've seen them in the last year, think back to the last 12 months, what's the most exciting thing from a progressive point of view that has happened? CVS stopped selling cigarettes probably didn't register on your important-o-meter that you maintain at your house, okay? But for the White House, this was a signature event. It was so significant that they had a special briefing to announce it, okay? Is this the kind, I mean, this is the kind of thing, the kind of issue, and I would add this to, you know, a lot of other issues like, sorry, just going to say it, gay marriage, pot legalization, whether your neighborhood has a Whole Foods, global warming, Okay, that you know may or may not be important, um, but I can promise you they're not important to the average person making 35 grand a year driving UberX or working at Walmart. There's not. Period. They're highly important to people seeking tenure at Wesleyan. Highly. Okay, and that is the group that the Democratic Party represents. Now, what does this mean? It means that that party is completely changed completely and utterly. It also means that a huge percentage of American voters are currently up for grabs, completely up for grabs. So if the Democratic Party represents the rich and the poor, shouldn't be too hard to represent everybody else, should it? The flip side of this is the Republican Party has also changed, I would say. And if you watch the Rachel Maddow program, um, and, you know, don't, uh, I actually hired Rachel Maddow uh, when, she, when I worked at MSNBC back before it was the Leon Trotsky channel. And um, I hired her to debate me every night. Uh, she's a great debater, and she certainly means it, uh, regardless of the evidence. Um, but if, 
<laughs> uh, but if you but if you watch a channel or if you you know you just pick up the the ambient noise uh, from most of the media, the idea is that the Republican Party is more than ever a kind of retrograde, you know, the finest minds of the 12th century kind of party, you know, a, a party that is totally uh, controlled by evangelicals who reject modernity, who think you know, man and dinosaur live together. The Flintstones was a documentary. You know what I mean? It's just kind of who's, who wake up in the morning trying to limit women's health options or whatever that is more conservative than ever. Um, and the truth is very different. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Evangelicals are less, less powerful, I would argue, than they've ever been within the Republican Party. But if you're, we're going to be totally honest about it, I think you'd conclude that the Republican Party is less sure of what it believes. So, in other words, the Democratic Party has reoriented and has a pretty precise series of points on the compass it's pursuing. And the Republican Party is just absolutely floating at sea trying to figure out what it's for. So on the Democratic side, which is, I think, more interesting uh, because they're in charge of everything, um, and by everything I mean not simply the White House but every cultural institution you know, in the Western world, um, you notice, for example, um, that a lot of the the president's concerns and a lot of the, the emphasis the president puts on certain issues that bewilder conservatives um, grow out of not hard left ideology. I actually don't think the president is a Marxist. I think I would respect him more if he were uh, because at least Marxists have a coherent economic plan, which is insane, but it, at least it um, it's an, you know, has an internal coherence. They've thought it through. Uh, I would say it's pure fashionable lifestyle liberalism on the one side and then on the other pandering to the lowest possible instincts in um, certain groups of voters. In other words, ethnic politics. So in other words, if you're wondering like how it's changed, the Obama White House, the fact that Al Sharpton is, I'm serious, is one of the president's key domestic policy advisors, and I'm not hyping that. I'm not on TV. I'm being as sincere as I can. He went to the White House 73 times in recent years, who was the first person the president consulted before he chose a new attorney general. How did that happen? It happened, and I have to say, I knew Obama before he um, was elected. I was at MSNBC during that campaign, and I was in the process of getting fired, and um, they couldn't fire me because I had a contract, so they made me chief campaign correspondent. And so I went on the road with Barack Obama and was with him that entire campaign and, and got to know him and smoked a Marlboro with him and, and thought he was kind of an interesting guy. Um, I didn't agree with him, and I, I did think there was kind of a creepy religious quality to his campaign. Um, but I never thought for a second that he would be the kind of guy who would rely on Al Sharpton for advice. In fact, I thought he was exactly the opposite guy. I never thought he would do that. Now, why is he doing it? Um, partly he's doing it because... Sharpton has wormed his way into the president's inner circle. Um, and I will say Sharpton is clever enough to do that. I also know Sharpton very well. And if I can just parenthetically note, he is one of the smartest uh, political players I know. I had him on years ago, 15 years ago, when I had a show at CNN. Actually, I, guess I had this, I was sitting in my office and my assistant brings in this package and it's a VHS cassette that someone has sent cold to the, to the channel, to the network. It winds up on my desk. I view it, and it turns out to be real. It was a DEA surveillance tape from 1982, and it features Al Sharpton. He was caught just in the sting operation. They didn't expect to, but they caught him. And it opens up. It's grainy, abscam-like footage, and it opens up with Sharpton wearing a cowboy hat, a leather jacket, smoking a cigar, cowboy boots, walks in, sits across from his undercover agent, and starts talking about kilos. 
It was the worst tape I've ever seen. It was the most damning piece of video that's probably ever existed. I felt like I was going to crawl under the desk just looking at it. If it were me, I would move to Paraguay and never come home. So I call Sharpton, just to be cruel, and I said, I have this uh, tape, and I'm going to run it tonight. He said, well, I'd love to come on your show and respond to it. He didn't even ask to see it. Great. So he flies down to Washington. We've got a studio audience of like 300 people. Sharpton sits down. I said, Mr. Sharpton, I didn't even ask. I didn't even set it up. Watch this tape. He watches the tape. I'm watching his face. The audience is gasping because it's just so horrible, this tape. Al Sharpton turns out to be a drug dealer, okay? Sharpton's face, impassive, not sweating at all. Looks totally calm. I said, Mr. Sharpton, how do you respond to that tape? He looks me right in the face and said, where's the second tape? And I thought, yeah, you know, I, I had no idea what he was talking about. But obviously, you can never betray that on TV. And I'm, but I'm thinking, God, I wish someone had told me about a second tape, but nobody did. I said, Mr. Sharpton, we're not here tonight to talk about the second tape. We're going to talk about this tape and your inclusion in it. How do you respond to this? But he smelled weakness like a dog can smell weakness. <laughs> and he moved forward and he goes, you don't have the second tape, do you? You haven't seen the second tape, have you? And yet you want me to comment on the first tape. I'm not going to do that. And I just felt the air change. The audience, they just, they moved. In that one second, it went from, I cannot believe Al Sharpton is a drug dealer to why is the guy in the bow tie being mean to the minister? <laughs> I lost the segment. It was the most humiliating, Custer-like defeat I have ever suffered in my life. And as I was driving home that night, I was thinking about this, and I, and I realized, there's no second tape. He completely made that up. So I never discount the fact that there is some kind of complicated blackmail situation between the White House and Sharpton. But my real belief is that Sharpton is merely part of the strategy, an incredibly cynical, a strategy so cynical I think Lyndon Johnson would blush before employing it, strategy to whip up race hatred. I mean, I just got to be totally blunt with you, to use ethnic politics to mobilize voters. Well, here's the problem with it in my opinion, is that ethnic politics is the one form of politics that you can't resolve and that you can't, in the end, control. Whereas issue-based politics, which is what we've had, by and large, with some exceptions in American history, um, is resolvable. If you and I are mad at each other because we disagree on an issue, we disagree on gay marriage or legalizing marijuana or whatever, any issue, pick one, taxes, you know, issues come and go. And they do get resolved, or they fade in importance, or we forget that they exist, or whatever, and we can be friends again. But if we're divided by ethnicity, that's forever. Ethnicity is immutable. It does not change. And so you can wind up with deeply fractured politics, and in fact, politics that become violent and scary, if you have ethnic politics. Okay? And I think the president, for really cynical electoral reasons, uh, has leaned on ethnic politics and is using Al Sharpton to do it. So what does all of this mean? You have on one side a party that has basically abandoned its traditional base, the Democratic Party, and you have on the other side a Republican Party that doesn't know what it believes. What does that mean for 2016? Well, the first thing it means is that anything you imagine is going to happen in the next two years is almost certainly not going to happen. And I've noticed living in D.C. around people whose job it is to predict things that even the smartest of them fall prey to the dumbest and oldest misconception of all, which is that tomorrow is going to be just like today, but a little more so. The future is a pure extrapolation from right now. Current you know, trends will continue. And that is very often not the case. And I think reflective people understand that. 
You know, that those graphs you see are sometimes interrupted by unforeseen events. In fact, they almost always are interrupted by unforeseen events. Um, it's certainly, if anybody who follows commodity markets can tell you that's like a fact of their life. So people who believe Hillary Clinton is going to be the Democratic nominee and that she will be challenged by Jeb Bush on the Republican side, I don't know what's going to happen. I'd bet $10,000 to any person in this room that will not happen. Okay? So on the Democratic side, here's why. Because Hillary Clinton is completely out of step with the modern Democratic Party. The modern Democratic Party cares about two issues. And I'm not talking about garden variety Democrats who live next to you. I'm talking about the people who actually choose the nominee in the early primary states. They care about two issues. And they are, in order, Wall Street and war. And they're mad about both of them. Really mad. Your average base primary voting Democrat is enraged by the bailouts of 2008. They're enraged by income inequality, by falling middle class wages. These are maybe academic concerns, but they're no less real. And they think the system is rigged by people in finance, and they think that's America's biggest problem. Hillary Clinton, by contrast, received more money from Wall Street than any sitting member of the United States Senate when she served in it, more than Chuck Schumer, which you would think would be impossible, but no. If you're wondering why carried interest is still in the tax code, Hillary Clinton. She couldn't be more out of step with the Democratic base. And then the second factor on which they vote, actually, for real, is war. And they're really mad about war, all wars. They're actually much closer to the Cato position on that. And without even getting into foreign policy, let me just make an obvious point, which is if you put Hillary Clinton's beliefs on foreign policy next to John McCain's beliefs, you will find it's almost entirely a union set. They share all their same assumptions. What are the meaningful differences between the two? There aren't any. I'm not attacking anyone. I'm just noting the obvious. So the Democratic Party is really going to nominate at a, at a moment when the left of that party is empowered, and I don't mean just the traditional left, I mean the French Revolution left, the, the year zero left, the burn it down left, the Elizabeth Warren left. When they're feeling more empowered than ever, they are going to nominate someone who finds their core beliefs repugnant and vice versa, and that's not going to happen. And by the way, the Democrats almost never nominate, if they have a choice, the person who's, been not, who's run before. I mean, that's what Republicans do. It's true. Republicans love you if you have failed before. They, that's why they always nominate the oldest guy, the guy whose turn it is. It, if you've, no, I mean, that's, that's true. Once you lose on the Republican side, you are seen as sincere. On the Democratic side, you are seen as contemptible. And if you don't believe me, quick quiz, where's Mike Dukakis today? He is where he's been for the last 30 years at Eastern Massachusetts State Technical College for Nursing or wherever he's been exiled to. He's not allowed on hardball, okay? And that's a low bar, trust me. I used to work there. If given any opportunity, the Democrats will pick someone they've never heard of with no experience. As James Carville always used to say to me, the one thing Democrats hate is experience. The Democratic dream is to get on a commercial airliner and have the pilot say, ladies and gentlemen, welcome. Never done this before. There are a lot of buttons up here, not clear what they are, but we're going to have a great flight today. <laughs> Democrats love it when you've never done this before. I mean, they're like children on Christmas morning. They just want to rip open the package and see what's inside, okay? Republicans, of course, by contrast, hierarchical, orderly, respecting tradition, et cetera, et cetera. So all they need is somebody to come in from left field, literally left field, and that person, I think, has not just a good shot at the nomination, but will get it. And by the way, I don't believe any of 
the signals you're getting from the Elizabeth Warren camp. Elizabeth Warren, obviously, the American Indian Center from Massachusetts, um, who, who really is, to her great credit, in my opinion, um, an orthodox leftist. I mean, she really believes the means of production need to be taken over by the state. And she hates you. And I don't mean that in a generic sense. I mean that in a very specific sense. Each one of you by name. <laughs> but her views are much closer to those of the average Democratic primary voter. And on the Republican side, it can go one of two ways. And this is the last thing I'll say. I'll open up to your hostile questions in just a second. But when you're trying to evaluate who's going to get the nomination, the obvious way to do that, the sort of default way to do that, is to think through each candidate as an individual and weigh you know, his or her attributes, histories, platforms. You know, is, this the, is he an impressive guy? I think he's more impressive. That is the opposite of what actually happens. We don't choose presidential candidates, or for that matter, presidents, based on how impressive the individual is. We choose them based on what the country needs at the moment when the election rolls around. It was not about the person. It's about the environment. It's about what does the market want at that moment. And if you go back over the past you know, 30 presidents, it's pretty clear that's exactly how we choose them. Is there another year other than 1992 that Bill Clinton could have gotten the Democratic nomination? Of course not. A draft dodger beat a war hero. How did that happen? Well, August of 91, the Soviet Union goes under. 50 years we've been you know, orienting all American politics around the Cold War. Suddenly that's disappeared. Let's take a chance on Clinton. Could George W. Bush have been elected in any other year except after eight years of Bill Clinton? No, of course not. Never. Could he have been reelected except after 9-11? No. So it's only about what the conditions are at the moment that voters have to choose, in my opinion. I'm totally convinced of this. And so with that in mind, Republican voters, and indeed nationally voters, will want one of two things. Either they will want someone to correct the problems of the Obama years, or they will want someone to restore order. So there are two ways it can go. Either you will have a continuation of the way things have been for the past six years where we keep getting press releases about how great the economy is doing, but in fact, wages, at least for most people, uh, continue to slip. The job market remains really, really soft. You have high persistent unemployment, and there's just a kind of depressing zeitgeist. People feel down, feel like the country's not impressive. You have basically a replay of the late 1970s and so the country is dying to feel better about itself. It's dying for inspiration. It's dying for sober executive leadership. And under those circumstances, you could see the Republican Party nominating somebody kind of more inspirational. You could see like whatever the, the Reagan fill-in at the moment might be. Okay? That's one scenario. So under that scenario, you know, I think you've got to make a pretty good case for someone like Scott Walker. I think Rand Paul actually, uh, works under a situation like that. You know, probably a couple others who would fit. That's scenario A. Here's scenario B, which I think is slightly more likely, which is you have an environment where you start to see a little chaos at the edges. So I covered crime uh, for a newspaper and then spent a year writing a book about crime, and I learned a bunch of interesting things, um, a lot of interesting things. But here are two things that I, I learned that I've never forgotten. Uh, one, 
that you're much more likely to see high crime rates in places where there is dramatic disparity between income. And I know everybody on the right hates to hear that, but it's true. Crime rates during the Depression went down because the perception was that everyone was poor. But in times in American history, and this is certainly true in other countries, where it feels to most people like there's a small number of rich people and everyone else is kind of shafted, you, see, you tend to see a lot more crime. Okay? So that's clearly a notion that's floating around out there. And the second thing I learned is that temperature and civic disorder are closely linked. You've never seen a riot in a snowstorm because there's never been one, ever. <laughs> They're almost all, almost all really bad riots, with some exceptions. You know, the worst riots in the last 100 years took place you know, in April of 1968 because that's when Martin Luther King was killed. Um, but in general, bad riots take place during warm weather. And if you think that the issues that were on display during the Ferguson riots have been resolved, and those issues are many, but there's a lot of resentment, there's a, a lot of uncertainty on the part of law enforcement, there's a lot of political correctness governing the response, you know, the whole panoply of issues that led to that. If you think those have been resolved, then okay. But if you think they haven't, then you're looking forward to this coming summer with some trepidation. There could be a lot more of that. And I hope that doesn't happen. I love America. I don't want to see that. But I can promise you that the, that the presidential campaigns are thinking through how they're going to respond if that happens. And if that does happen, people with my beliefs, anti-authoritarian above all, for the individual against the group above all, and I presume that describes most of your core beliefs, those people are out of luck. Because guess what people want when there's disorder? Order. It's the first thing they want. And what are they willing to trade for? Anything. So under those circumstances, you will see candidates who seem like they have a pretty firm hand ascend. And really, in this race, there's just one who, who fits the, that, I would say, job description right now. And he's currently being mocked, and in my view, probably correctly, uh, by a lot of people as Chris Christie. So Chris Christie got attacked yesterday in the New York Times because he likes room service uh, and famous people. Surprise. Um, and Chris Christie's under federal investigation, and Chris Christie is very overweight, and Chris Christie is not taken seriously by a lot of the people who are handicapping this race. However, I can promise you that if we have a lot of problems this summer, Chris Christie will be the front runner by far. I think Chris Christie will get the nomination for the same reason that America in 1968 chose not the warmest candidate. You know, not the least authoritarian, that's for sure. They chose Richard Nixon. Why? Because the worst riots since the draft riots happened that year. And the feeling was, you know, we want dad to come home and take control. So I think if I had to bet on it, I would say the most likely combination in this coming election is between Chris Christie and Elizabeth Warren. Um, and that's, you know, probably not that heartening. Uh, <laughs> The last thing I'll say before I take your questions is, please, if I ever come back again, and I think I'm pretty much assured that I, I won't now, <laughs> but if I ever do again, the last thing, and by that point, we'll be like three years into the Chelsea Clinton administration, do not remind me that I made that prediction because I don't want to deal with accountability. Thank you. Yes, sir. Jerry Sickenshire, how do you save a country that has 
How do you save a country that has voted twice, over 50%, for a ser serial violator of the Constitution, a traitor, and a liar? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about the education of the populace. By it's a it's a great it's a great question. I mean, I, I think Dan was Dan some I think it was Dan made a sort of offhand remark about buy ammo. I don't think that's a stupid idea, to be totally honest. Um, I have, uh, and I'm not joking at all. But how do you educate people? I mean, look, make the case. I, one thing that I find so striking about current political discourse, discourse between politicians, not all the ancillary talking that goes on on radio and television and in print, but the actual debates between politicians is how often they take place in shorthand. You almost never hear anybody appeal to first principles ever or bother to explain anything. Now on the right, you know, I don't know how to explain that on the left other than it's demagoguery is always easier than legitimate argument. But on the right, you would think that there would be a higher bar. And my personal theory is, and I'm, I'm speaking against interest here, and please don't ever tweet any of this because I don't want to deal with it, but this is what I really believe, that the Republican Party, the leadership, has kind of outsourced its rhetoric department to talk radio and television. I do think that. I do think that. And I've been a beneficiary of that, to be totally blunt with you. Um, but I don't think it's been good for the Republican Party because the feeling is, well, you know, I don't need to explain myself. Rush Limbaugh does that, or whomever. And those skills have kind of atrophied. I mean, I, you know, I, I have probably more sympathy for John Boehner. I'm sure John Boehner would not make it across the room if he was, was here. You'd eat him, okay? I, I get that. I have a little more sympathy for Boehner because every single person in America hates John Boehner, so I always feel sorry for the for the unpopular person having been the, un I mean, I wore a bow tie for 20 years on TV, so like I know what it's like to be hated. Um, but, so I don't want to add to the pylon on John Boehner other than to say the obvious, which is John Boehner couldn't make the case for markets or for smaller government or personal liberty like with a gun to his head. He just, he's not capable of doing it. Those are muscles he hasn't exercised in decades. Perhaps when he first ran, when he left the bar and entered Congress, been back to the bar quite a few times since, I think, but uh, he was good at it, but he hasn't had to be, and none of them have. So like, explain to people, I can think, my mind changes all the time on all kinds of issues, trust me. I can't even keep track of my own politics because I, I really make an effort to be open to superior argument. Or maybe I'm just wishy-washy and dumb or getting senile or something, but I really try to listen to what people are saying because every once in a while, I have this amazing and exciting experience where my old preconceptions die. And in order for that to happen, however, you need to have a powerful, logical argument. And you almost never hear them, ever. So like, I think people should start saying what they really think. Everyone is very intimidated. I mean, clearly we're going through this cultural revolution thing where you're not allowed to say what you really think about anything for fear of being called names. But that only works, since we don't have re-education camps and nobody's going to be sent to a collective farm or anything, that only works if you're legitimate, if you allow yourself to be intimidated. Now, people have been fired recently for saying what they think, and I get it, you know, why people who could be fired would want to be quiet. But if you have the kind of job where you're not going to be fired, or you're not worrying about people, you say what you really think. Like, who cares? I said something the other day on a TV show at the channel where I work, and I didn't think it was, it just seemed common sense to me, and the host said to me after, boy, I can't, you know, I don't think you're allowed to say that. 
And I thought, and this was, I mean, this is like a very, this is someone I really respect, said that to me. And I, I don't, why do I care? Like, I actually think that's true. I wish I did more of that. I wish I were braver. I wish we were all braver. Being brave and just saying what you think is sincerely true, not trying to provoke people or hurt them or say mean things for the sake of saying mean, mean things, but just speaking common sense out loud, it goes a long way. It's remarkable to me how many people are complicit in the insanity of our current moment just by their silence. And how often I am, I'll admit it, how often I'm a coward. And I don't say, no, I, you know, I, just, I just don't believe that, and here's why. I don't want to deal with it, you know? Anyway, I don't know. Yes, sir. How will ISIL affect the elections is the question. And my sense is it probably won't. I spent a couple of years doing foreign policy reporting, you know, reporting from other countries. And I was amazed and sad. No one cares is the truth. It, does, it, it takes an awful lot to move voters by telling them about what's happening in other countries. I mean, even now, there's the, I mean, it doesn't mean that doesn't matter. It just means that our political system is kind of immune to the reality beyond our shores and even sometimes, you know, within our borders. But um, so I don't think there's going to be a huge political effect unless, and here's what I think is really going on. I, I, my read of the whole thing without being boring, but in one sentence, is this is really a Sunni Shiite thing. And certainly when you go there, if you've been to the Gulf recently, I mean, all, their whole focus is on growing Iranian influence. You know, why is Iran suddenly so powerful? I don't know, because someone took out the major, major counterbalance to Iran. I don't know who did that or why. Um, but somebody did. And it uh, scared the hell out of the Gulf states. And it's made them less stable. I'm talking about not just the Saudi kingdom, but you know, Qatar, UAE, Kuwait. And uh, why is this relevant? Because of energy, of course. It would not shock, so everyone's kind of focused on Jordan and the spillover from Syria into Jordan. And that's obviously, you know, the immolation of that guy yesterday or of, on January 3rd, but the tape came out yesterday of the Jordanian pilot was aimed at, you know, the Hashemites in Jordan trying to destabilize Jordan. So everyone's kind of focused on that. I would focus on the Gulf. What would happen if you saw a kind of Arab spring, and I'm saying that with scare quotes around it, in Saudi Arabia, you know, Abu Dhabi or something? Whoa, what would that do to energy prices? What would that do? That would affect the world. That would be a big deal. And I, I've talked to people in the administration. There are some normal people in the administration, like three, I, think. I met all three of them. And <laughs> what, are you, what are you thinking about how to keep that from happening? That's not even a concern. They're so focused on like the traditional foreign policy aims of, you know, working out a peace settlement between Israel and the Arabs, and they're not even focused on that. Um, but that's, that's what would freak me out. That's what would scare me, and that's certainly what would affect our economy. Anyway, I see John coming my way. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tucker. That was really fun. Thanks, all of you, for being here. Thanks for your support of uh, Cato, and have a great day.